and welcome to episode 10 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. Along with Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. In this episode, we are talking again about critical race theory, but not in the way we discussed it with Drs. Stovall and Gonzalez Stokas in episode 3. Here, we are talking about state-level legislation that prohibits teaching CRT in schools, and we learn in great detail what critical race theory means when translated into these laws, and we hear about the intentions behind this legislation and its impacts on day-to-day life in the classroom. Our guests today are both accomplished educators and philosophers, and they are our very first father-daughter pair. Kara, would you care to do the greetings? Welcome, um, Sarah and Larry. I'm going to ask that you begin just by introducing yourselves a little bit um, as scholars and teachers. And Larry, why don't you start us off? I'm, I'm Larry Blum. I'm a retired professor of philosophy and education at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And I work in the area of um, philosophy of race, philosophy of education, and moral philosophy. And um, I'll stop there. Well, let me just ask, what is the uh, the University of Chicago Press book that you put out as part of their series uh, relatively recently? What is that book titled? That's a book from 2021 that I co-wrote with a historian. It's in a series at the University of Chicago all of which pair philosophers and historians on educational topics. And our topic, I mean, our title is Integrations, the Struggle for um, Racial Equality and Civic Renewal in Public Education. I came out in 2021. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And Sarah? Um, my name is Sarah Blumsmith. Larry Blum is my dad. Um, I was a elementary classroom teacher in Cambridge, Massachusetts, New Haven, Connecticut, and Guilford, Connecticut uh, for about 10 years, and then uh, did a doctorate in education where I focused on um, understanding teachers' orientations to technology in the classroom, but how teachers kind of in their own words and ideas make sense of the rhetoric around educational technology and what they want to do and want to be doing in the classroom. Um, and then that have been working uh, as a postdoctoral researcher for the past few years. And I'm planning to return to classroom teaching in the fall. Great. Thank you. So we are here today to talk about critical race theory and really anti-critical race theory legislation. And to start us off, can you give us a bit of a story about why um, why this matters, why our listeners should care about anti-critical race theory legislation? Well, starting in the early 2000, 2010s with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, teachers became much more concerned to be able to teach in constructive ways about about race in historical-oriented courses and present-oriented courses. And that was very ramped up in 2020 with uh, uh, demonstrations around George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. And starting in 2021, the, the, right, the right, the conservative right, pushed back against this. And Throughout American history, there has been this the same uh, dance, so to speak, where there's some forward movement of coming to grips with race in some way or other, and then a pushback against it. So this legislation is now, it, it, at least 17 states have passed legislation that in some way curtails racial justice education, one might call it. It also, um, it, it also cur- curtails education about LGBTQ issues and trans issues as well. It, it's not always in the exact same bill, but it's kind of the part of the same uh, outlook, you might say. But I'm focused myself because of my own expertise on the racial dimension of it. And this this legislation just strikes at the heart of everything that I 
believe in about what should go on in public schools or in schools more generally and to to help people come to grips with the the history of of race in the United States and figure out how citizens, you know, to train future citizens to engage in constructive ways with racial injustice. And those things were really happening. And this legislation is absolutely, there's just never been anything quite like it. I mean, it, as I say, it, it does fit into a certain tradition in American thinking, but this this legislation goes further than anything that I'm aware of prior to it. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, could you could you talk about what specifically is in this legislation? I believe that you have you've shown us some examples from Florida and New Hampshire. What is what is the wording like, and how are people responding to it? Well, the the wording is it it both differs from state to state, but. Most of it is derived from a um, memo that was put out in the waning months of the Trump administration that was an attempt to counter the, the, the 1619 project. That was a project that the New York Times put out to, to try to sort of talk about the impact of slavery on, on American history. It was coordinated by someone named Nicole Hannah Jones, a reporter for the Times, but she assembled a very distinguished group of academic people. And there was, you know, articles in the Times, but also curricula that were developed and a book that became a bestseller. And the, the Trump people didn't like that. So they had, they had something called the 1776 project and it had, um, it's just like a very distorted way of thinking about American history. But the legislation tends to come out of the principles, if you can dignify them that way, that were espoused in the 1776 project. I, I don't, I don't have them at my beck and call here. I could, I could send them. Um, but the, the legislation, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I've just got examples of it. It's sort of hard to characterize it because in a way it's principles of moral teaching. They're bad principles, but that's the way they're stated. So here's one. You are forbidden for teaching that, quote, an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. So, you know, it doesn't say any, it doesn't say, oh, you can't teach about slavery or you can't teach about the civil rights movement. It doesn't designate a subject matter. It designates a kind of principle that's supposed to guide your teaching about race. Now, most of the states that have this legislation also have mandates in their state standards that say that you should teach about these various important uh, aspects of American history that have to do with race. Um but you have to do it in a way that doesn't violate that that standard. And it would be fair to say that the intent of the um of the legislation is that you aren't supposed to say that racism is kind of deeply baked into American history and life. And you shouldn't say things that make white people feel too guilty because they don't really have anything to feel guilty about. So you shouldn't make the, the children of the white parents feel, feel bad. And you, you shouldn't teach about, um, structural racism. So I think some of the legislation might mention structural racism, but it's, it's, it's kind of like that term is almost like too in the weeds for them. So they don't exactly say that, um, but, you know, the, it, it's clear that the intent of it is to teach a very whitewashed view of American history. I mean, it would be hard to dispute that. Of course, the people behind it aren't going to say that. But, um, and, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there for now. Larry, I know that you're a very careful thinker. Um, and... You're, you've said it's fair to say it's clear that the intent is people aren't saying that directly, but it's clear. Can you say a little bit more about why you are saying that it is fair to say that the intent is to of to 
to make these claims about structural or to avoid making claims about structural racism and to quote unquote whitewash history. What evidence do you have there? Well, in a way, the the wording, the wording of the the precepts, um, you know, like the one that I that I read you, is clearly okay. meant to say you you can't accuse some student of of racism. They we they don't want you to accuse students of racism, and the students that they're clearly concerned about are white students. So they they have uh, so an, another one of the principles is you can't teach that one race is morally inferior or superior to another race. So now that actually sounds reasonable on its face. And I read something recently where a black teacher said, "Gee, I wish they had prohibited that when I was young, coming up." But actually, the intent of the legislation is not so much that it's wrong to teach that black people are inferior. It's wrong to teach that white people are morally inferior because they're racist. And now, of course, they're not going to say that in the legislation itself. So that's why I'm being a little <laughs> not <laughs> putting it right out there. You know, I just want to be clear because, you know, I am encouraging, I want to encourage teachers to actually read the legislation because it's it doesn't exactly say what it intends to do. And you sort of have to read it both in a kind of discourse analysis way to say, well, okay, what do they mean by this? But also to read it in a literal way, because I feel that if you read it in a, liber- a literal way, most of the things that I think teachers who teach about racial justice teach would not actually violate most of these precepts. Now, that doesn't say that people won't think they're violating it, but they can argue that they're not not violating. Or that's my that's one of the things that I wanted to propose in our discussion today. I'm very excited to come back to that uh, particular point. But before we do, can can you uh, you have designed some sort of study guides is the wrong uh, way to put it, but some 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 guidance to help teachers uh, read this legislation constructively. Uh, could you go through a couple of those? Uh, some questions to guide teachers reading as they're going through the legislation? So, you know, minimally, I just thought it would be good if teachers read this legislation together. And in a way, if that's the only thing that's taken away from our conversation, that would be fine. And uh, Kara, this, you know, this kind of came up for me in the session that you had at PES with Joy Tankora Erickson. It just seems to me that teachers should be empowering themselves by really knowing the legislation and kind of looking at the legislation with two questions in mind. One is, what do you think they are trying to get us to do by this legislation? What do they want us to do and not do? That's one question. A separate question, though, and I want to distinguish these two, is look at the literal meaning of the legislation. Can you teach what you've been teaching without violating that literal meaning as you understand that literal meaning, recognizing that the literal meaning might be out of whack with their intent. So that's why I want these to be two questions. I want teachers both to empower themselves through kind of analyzing what you might say are the politics of this, what are they actually trying to get us to do, but also to be empowered by saying, well, we don't actually teach that anyone is inherently racist or sexist because of their race. We don't teach that. So you said we can't say that that a student is inherently racist or sexist. Well, we don't say that. We just say somebody might have, you know, racist views, but they're not inherent. It's something you learn. You learn to be racist. We, you, it's not something that's inherent. So, so... You know, I sort of feel like I'm I'm too far removed from what teachers on the ground would actually think. So I'm not saying, oh, you know, look at it the way I'm looking at it. It's just more like an example to inform, you know, my idea of uh, gatherings of teachers, either inside a school or people at the same grade level or maybe at the through the union or, you know, at, at the district level. I'm not sure what the 
you know, different ways that teachers could actually get together to do this, but I just feel that it would be good if they could do so. Thank you so much, Larry. So I want to turn this to you, Sarah, and I want to ask a multi-part question, (laughs) and I can come back to it. The first one is you mentioned that you were out of the classroom since the Obama administration, which is very similar to my own trajectory, and that you're anticipating going back into the classroom. Um, And so the first part of this is I want you to sort of talk about what do you feel like you need to know now that you're returning into the classroom in a different political context. Um, The next part of the question brings it a little wider because I know that your expertise and some of your research is on teacher decision-making and autonomy and how teachers think through issues of practice. And so not just what do you feel like you need, but knowing what you know about schools and how teachers gather, what do you think would help them to feel like they have some agency and autonomy as they're being restricted in these, in these different ways? Yeah, there were sort of like a few things I mean, that that prompted. I feel like there are really profound sort of things at stake here around an under, like an understanding that teaching is never a value neutral proposition and that sort of rhetoric that suggests that it can be is itself an assertion of values. Um, and I think the question, like, I definitely think a lot about sort of like what it felt, what it felt like to teach under the Obama administration, even compared to the like George Bush administration that I had taught under previously. And it did, there was something that felt different. And I feel like all of us, like how the George Bush administration felt prior to understanding what the world could be like under the Donald Trump administration and its consequences, like had just had no idea what that felt like and how different it could be. But like there was there, it did feel like there was a difference in as a teacher, what you could assert as an, a non-controversial shared value of a, of our country, of our classroom as a community, as a representative, like community of one among many in the country. And it did, it like felt different. And I, so I, I think the question is sort of like how this is hampering teachers. I actually really appreciate, Dad, your suggestion, starting with something around sort of like direct engagement with the legislation itself, because I think these questions of like, what is the specific language? How has it been interpreted? Some of the examples that you shared with me that involved specific banning of, of children's picture books, which like children's picture books are like the theory the like theoretical underpinning of the like elementary classroom. Like that is how you talk, help kids think about how to understand broader issues. That is how you help give them language to talk about abstract ideas and the way that they relate to them. But the, the banning of specific picture books that like you and I both read where that are about just an assertion of like universal difference and universal difference as positive. So, I I mean, that, like, to so I think separating out the kind of, like, what is the specific language versus how it's being interpreted, empowering teachers to interact directly with the specific language. I think there's a lot of ways in which uh, sort of, like, in multiple areas, teachers are often told, like, either, like, this is the legislation or this is the research and it means you should do this without the opportunity for them to have direct engagement with what that legislation or research actually is. Um, I think it's definitely sort of, like, practically can be difficult to make the space to do that and would involve, you know, administrators being in support of teachers, like, having the space to, to gather and engage with the legislation directly. Um, but I think understanding... Like, of course, teachers are terrified if that's if like books like that are banned. And I think that relates to sort of this question that Kara asked around, like, what is the intent and this difference between like I kept thinking about there are these ways in which and again, I'm speaking as an elementary teacher because that was my experience. And I think there are like differences as a secondary 
there are sort of ways in which they're like commonly agreed upon values of the early elementary classroom about like fairness and kindness and like equality that seem very non-controversial. And it feels like part of what is at stake in this legislation is the difference between a sort of, I think, of like false equivalency assertion that like all we're talking about is sort of like that general idea of like difference is okay and and like equality is good versus a specific acknowledgement of the like deep structural racism on which our country is founded, which continues to like manifest in, in the everyday in a wide variety of ways and sort of what it means as a teacher to not be able to acknowledge I think that is what's it like not be able to acknowledge like structural racism and inequality but the fact that the legislation makes it seems as though to acknowledge structural racism and inequality involves like telling a bunch of seven-year-olds that they're being racist which like no one is or I don't know if anyone is doing that but like that's I don't know that's not what people are doing but to like pretend that that is the conclusion of those conversations which I think is what's sort of like being implied um, that is really troubling and the sort of what does it mean to restrict you on the engagement with structural inequality and the ways and, and, and trying to think about sort of like what does that mean I think even at an early elementary level you're going to talk about it differently, but I think there is a way to talk about what that lived experience. And it's a privilege of whiteness to not have already talked about that. Like that is a privilege of like being a white child or like a white parent that you, those conversations have not been prompted by the daily life in which you live. Um, I'm not sure I answered Kara's question. <laughs> I'm sure that you did. I'm sure that you did. Uh, I, can I follow up on on one of the things that uh, you said? I'm not sure that this is going to be totally relevant. We can uh, edit it out if it's not. But I, I was struck by the role that sort of protecting teachers' autonomous decision-making or the discretionary space that they have in the classroom plays in uh, in, in inviting teachers to do their job. And this is coming from a couple of places. I'm teaching a doctoral class on contemporary education reform, and so I'm thinking a lot about these issues right now. One of the curious things about thinking about the transition from uh, the Bush administration to Obama to now Trump is that uh, one of the things that I feel like the Obama administration's education policy, specifically teacher evaluation policy, unintentionally opened the door for was this sort of micromanagerial approach to controlling what teachers can do in the classroom, suggesting that there is a right thing for everybody to do and that it is proper and good for policymakers, administrators, whatever, to step in and like put their foot down on that kind of thing. And what we are seeing, and it, there's a way of interpreting this sort of Trump era or late Trump era, now state legislation around anti-critical race theory as just a different form of a similar assumption. Could you speak to that a little bit, Sarah and, and Larry, maybe? I mean, I think one thing that that props for you, is the there's this wonderful article by uh, David Labry that I feel like really like illuminated things about just how like, Education reform makes for weird political bedfellows. And I think the, and it, like, if you think about sort of progressive education writ large and the history of progressive education, like, talk about your micromanagers, as well as like a long history of actually really problematic racial views, wanting to control, you know, like control of families, asserting values about like whose family is and is not doing it right. Those are embedded in the history of what is called prog progressive education, along with things that we might embrace around, you know, around like more individualized, um, like ideas of learning and like different ways of learning. So I, yeah, I think that idea of it's a really hard moment i think in general like teacher autonomy and agency are really under attack like under attack and have been um for a long time i think that's really difficult i think the like fear that teachers have and, and again like it the history of teacher autonomy is complicated because there were costs to that autonomy there were costs that, and some of those costs had actually a lot to do with like 
broader inequity when we don't sort of make sure that everyone is having an, an educational experience that is that is meaningful and that is meeting their needs because we're just sort of like letting people do what they do in their classrooms. That's that's not okay. That has led to ways in which that, you know, education is perpetuated inequality. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's hard to know how to say this. And I, I yeah, I'm interested in the like, I don't feel as though I fully understand would like to like under, understand better about the, the, the like wrestling with this sort of like, what is the rhetoric that is accompanying this legislation? I have these moments where I'm like, are you serious that this is what like Republican lawmakers are like spending your time doing is like writing legislation that's going to ban like reading Mem Fox books? Like that's what you're doing with your time. But like, what is sort of like the, yeah, the rhetoric around why this is happening and how to like make sense of that because cle yeah clearly it's coming from this very important specific cultural context but how i don't know the answer to like how can teachers deal with wrestling between sort of like what is the rhetoric between what it's about what is the actual language of the legislation and what does that mean for what they might be doing in the classroom well, let me turn it to uh, Larry real quickly, both to an answer or for an answer to that, but also I, I'm sure that you have seen the uh, the news story that has cropped up in the last week about the Disney documentary of about Ruby Bridges being banned in Florida schools on the objection of a uh, of a white parent being like, I am afraid that if this is shown in schools, it will make black kids hate white people because it shows so much historical documentation of white of like explicit white racism so in terms of trying to figure out how teachers ought to read this legislation and the kinds of fears that they might be having about what they're doing in the classroom uh could you speak to that a little bit um well, let me just say one thing in response to your earlier point about the micromanaging, you know, that Sarah picked up. It, it comes from the left, as it were, but then gets picked up by the right. But another very important aspect of the current legislation and the, 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 the kind of broader conversation around it that's supportive of it is a, a parent's rights framework. And that is something, you know, parents' rights isn't, as it were, a left or right thing, but it has different meanings in different educational contexts. And in the current context, as your example shows, Derek, it's really encouraging parents to, to, to think about what makes their kid uncomfortable rather than what might be meaningful education for their kid. And then to see the teacher as, as the bad guy, so to speak, who's making my kid feel bad. And, um, you know, the, the teacher can bring down, you know, it can cost the teacher their job. And it's just a terrifying development. I mean, Sarah and I have talked over the years about you know, ways that parents, you know, liberal parents, but overly entitled liberal parents can also come down on the teacher. But, you know, now you also have the apparatus of the law that's behind you to say, yeah, let's get rid of, get rid of that person. But, you know, when you're actually, Derek, I know an earlier iteration of that Ruby Bridges thing. I don't actually know the thing you're saying about Florida. But I know that parents have objected to the book because they thought it would make white people feel bad. And that just seems so preposterous. But, you know, when you say it, there are very complicated issues that teaching about race raises. It's not as if, oh, the, these conservatives just don't want us to do this very simple thing and we can just do it and what's, what's the problem? It's very complicated to teach about race. And you do have to think about what the white kids in the class feel, and you need to help them understand that they can choose to be allies and to be in favor of justice themselves. And the fact that other white people did horrible things in the past um, 
that's something they need to think about. They don't need to think about it when they're only six, but they need to think about it when they're in high school or whenever, um, you know, I don't know what the age, <laughs> the age appropriate dimension of that. But, you know, they, they're really genuine issues which are being exploited by the right to cost those teachers their job and to make teachers feel like, well, I'm just not going to go there at all because I want to hold on to my job, so I'm going to not teach that. And, you know, the, we know that that's already happening. Many teachers, you know, I talked to someone who had ties to Florida, and they said people are leaving, you know, leaving Florida. I mean, yeah, that's very understandable. Um, yeah, so. Thank you. Dad, can you? Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. It's absolutely. I was just going to say, I think, you know, your one of your earlier books, uh, like, engages with this question, because I think the, like, I was struck by your language around, it's like, we don't want to make the white kids feel bad. And I think, like, to sort of try to think about the reasonableness of our responsibility as teachers to the, like, so social emotional well-being of all the young people in our classrooms, not to make them create situations in which they feel unsafe or they feel, you know, like, victimized in any way. But I think this question of, like, the necessity of talking about the reality of structural racism and its implication and its reality in the past and its, and its current manifestation in the present without that being something that turns into an individual accusation of racism. Like, I, yeah, I wanted to come back to you because I feel like this is something you engaged with in earlier work around sort of like how much heightened emotionality there is around the personal accusation of racism and how that heightened emotionality can get in the way of necessary conversations about the structural problems. So, and, and, and then of, of course it's complicated by these issues of like developmental appropriateness and, and how we talk about that in different ways, but like feeling like wanting to feel like there's a way to do it, that there's a way to talk about the structural issues that we need to talk about that does not devolve into personal accusations of racism yeah, that's a that's a great point, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Sarah, because I didn't really mean to imply that you should never make any of your students no, feel I, bad or anything. You know, I don't think that you were at all. <laughs> no, I, I wanted to just clarify that. But yes, it's very important to figure out how to teach about injustice. You know, you live so it's thinking about the historical dimension of it. So, so when I did my very brief stint as a as a high school teacher teaching a course on race and racism at the school that Sierra went to. Um, I was concerned about, and people raised for me, well, you know, are the black kids going to get stirred up by the discussing slavery and like, you know, yell at the white kids and stuff like that. So I did, you know, give some thought to that. I mean, it, it didn't really happen in my class very much, just kind of around, around the edges. But, you know, in some way, the idea of structural racism, you can make clear to people that the whole point of thinking of it as structural is to take it off of in the individual blame way of looking at it. And I think it's very hard for Americans to do that. You know what I mean? Because they don't have a good grasp of structural anything, basically. They don't think in terms of structures. So there's this tendency to personalize everything. So then in these educational contexts, there's the worry that the students will, will personalize it. And, and, you know, a tremendous thing of great value that teachers could, could bring to this is to help people understand the difference between there are these structures out there. They kind of go on their own steam. They bring people into it. And it's not, it's not a particular person's fault exactly. And that we can, yeah. But, but let me, I'm sorry, just one more thing. So that was kind of, thinking about looking at historical issues. And one of the uh, legislation things that's both in New Hampshire and, um, oh, no, no, this was just in, just in Texas. It says that you can't make an individual feel guilt, anguish, 
or distress because of actions committed by members of your race in the past. And so, you know, an aspect of that is that, yes, you don't want an individual living in the present to feel guilty in the sense of blameworthy for a thing that happened in the past. But you do want someone in the present to recognize that they're inheriting a history. They're citizens of a certain country. That country has a certain history. You live in the present. You inherit the sins of the people in the past. So, you know, an obvious case of that that's not as emotionally charged is climate change. So we live now at this time where people in the past made bad choices, but we have to deal with those choices. We're the citizens. We have to be responsible and know what to do. Well, it's the same with racial injustice. We might not have caused that past racial injustice, but we live with the current consequences of it. And helping students kind of even just understanding that, I think, is tremendously helpful. And you can see that the people writing this legislation don't understand that. Thanks so much, Larry. Um, I want to turn us towards where teachers can go um, and where administrators can go with what you've raised for us today. And we've looked at some specific things Um, advice that you've already offered, which is particular ways to be reading the laws in states where people are being restricted by these laws. And your most recent comments and Sarah's question related to your previous book also talked about, well, what could teachers be doing to have what are difficult conversations in any context, Um, even when they're not being forbidden by law, there's some ideas for what people could do to be talking about race and talking about history. Um, You... I know that you have thought some about a particular teacher. Uh, Kimball is a pseudonym that you have some ideas about some things based on her work about how we, how teachers could be resisting um, these laws. So I'm wondering if you can share, you know, what might teachers be doing? What might Kimball be doing? And Sarah, please do chime in on this one as well. I mean, we, should I explain a little more about Kim? Kimball? Absolutely. That'd be perfect. That'd be great. Kimball is a teacher who Joy Dangora Erickson works with. um, The teacher, Kimball, that's not a real name, but anyway, she's in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is one of the states with this legislation. And she teaches kindergarten, and there's nothing in the legislation that really speaks directly to her, but she feels that if there's a racial situation that comes up in her classroom. It's almost like she can't name that it is a racial situation. So in the, in this article that Joy and uh, she wrote with Winston, Winston Tom, Thompson, a colleague of ours in philosophy of education also, um, she, she, so here's, here's one example. So she um, sees two, uh, where is it? Oh, yeah. Okay. She notes two lighter-complexioned kids mistreating a baby doll with darker skin tones. So she comes into that situation. She takes the doll away from the the two kids, the two white kids, or we can call them a white kid, but, you know, she's very carefully describing, uh, you know. Um, and she treats the doll well and sort of models what you should be doing with this doll rather than what these kids are doing with the doll. And, but she, she's not saying anything about race, but she is conveying that every kid should, every baby should be treated well. And she does sort of say something explicitly about that, that kind of universal thing about treating children well and how uh, even kids in kindergarten who are older than these babies have a responsibility to take care of those babies. I thought it was just fabulous what she came up with. Um, but she, she wanted to, she was, uh, she wanted to be able to have conversations with them, um, about why children with darker skin might have been treated badly. She would have liked to talk, sorry. 
more about the ways in which the students' treatment of the dark-skinned baby differed from their treatment of the lighter-skinned dolls. An important opportunity was missed, according to Kimber. So, Sarah, I actually wanted to know from you, because I didn't immediately think she needed to have that conversation with the children of that age. I thought in some way she had made a race-relevant <laughs> intervention and educational intervention that taught them something and that down the road, maybe they could have a conversation like that. So, I mean, I don't want to take away from the fact that Kimber feels that this legislation constrains her. So, you know, that's that's the most important thing, that she feels constrained by it. But on the specific issue, I wasn't completely sure that I agreed with her take on it. Maybe it doesn't matter if I don't, don't agree with it. It doesn't matter. I just want Kimber to be empowered and to, yeah. you know, be part of these conversations that help her think about, well, what do you do in situations like that? Kimber needs to be talking to her colleagues about that. But anyway, I, I wondered about that. I don't in any way feel like I know the answer to the question of like, at what age and then exactly what way to kind of introduce to like other than just asserting this general principle of like kindness and care towards others, which is not like not to diminish the power of that principle. And I think if anything, the Trump administration showed us the way in which that as like was not a given as just like a basic way in which we treat one another. And so that there is like a, a radicalism to asserting that there is care and like care and kindness for others. And then you can go sort of one step further than that and say, like, I, I'm sorry, I'm conscious of like care being like, don't name drop philosophers, but then it's also, it's intention with the like not wanting to pretend that ideas are mine that are actually like other people's. So like, Absolutely. John, that is, I apologize. So, like, John, like, one of the things that John Dewey says about sort of, like, what is so important about schools, what is so important about schools as a democratic institution is that schools enable people to develop empathy across greater and greater lines of difference. And that's what – that is the foundation of democracy is empathy across greater and greater lines of difference. So, like, from a kind of general principle of just, like, kindness and care to others, kindness and care across lines of difference to an acknowledgement – that a situation in which a lack of kindness from lighter skinned children towards a representation of a black body has a long history and would be experienced by could potentially be experienced by someone with like with a darker skinned body as like triggering all of those things. I think, yeah, it's hard to know how to talk about it. It reminded me, um, so I think I was feeling the tension was like, it's very powerful to feel like the things that that teacher is doing to intervene at all, to assert these deeply important values and principles and, and help her students know how to like enact them is so important. And then the kind of what is potentially lost by the lack of acknowledgement of the broader social context. Uh, when I was teaching in the sixth grade, um, we had this situation where like, it was just this unusual year in which all of almost all of the students who were pulled out of the classroom for special ed services were black boys. And, and that, and then there was a situation where like one of those students part wanted to participate and did participate in kind of like a morning, like more accelerated math, like math club competition thing. I can't remember the detail of it. And some other students didn't like made comments that were sort of like, what are you doing here? And we as teachers only, it was a, like before school thing. It wasn't happening in the classroom, but we as teachers only found out about it because the student's mother said something to us. And I think that's a situation where like you could make an argument that the students who were making the comments, who were white students, you could like argue about whether or not there was a racialized dimension to their comments, but you cannot disagree with the way in which those comments were experienced by that student. And I'm, I think especially by his mother, who's the person who sort of raised the concerns that those were experienced in a context that had everything to do with like what it meant to be black in America and what that felt like and what assumptions were being made about her son and what he could and could not do. And so 
it like feels like that's a situation in which like again there's some some imbalance there and like where that's happening but like how to be responsible to the experience to those experiences feels like it requires an acknowledgement of the broader social and structural context sarah it it requires it with what audience that that the class yeah, right. the classroom so definitely i that's i i don't remember this was like my student teaching year i don't totally remember what happened i feel like we must have said something i don't think that we talking in talking to either like the class as a whole or the students who made comments about it i don't think that we did ultimately like sort of put that in the context of structural racism but it feels like holding back in some way and maybe just to avoid the difficulty of it like to avoid the potential sort of difficulty or to avoid the worry which i think is a genuine worry that you're introducing something more complicated or that you're sort of like putting an idea into the situation that wasn't necessarily there for everyone in the situation and thus have like made it worse than it was. So I don't, I'm not like presenting that as a situation in which I like did the right thing or know exactly what should have been done, but only a situation that I feel like really brings to the fore this question of like, to what extent and when you acknowledge the broader context. I mean, clearly that that's right because the broader context isn't only a matter of the kids having a, a deeper understanding of what's going on, but it affects the experience of the kids of color. And, you know, I think in the, in Kimball's case, she says that almost immediately the white kids got with the program and, you know, and, and started treating, you know, wanted to treat the, the doll well, sort of. <clears throat> but that doesn't, so, but I then I'm wondering, listening to you, whether some of the black kids in her class had a kind of racial response to this thing that, yeah. you know, she's, she's calling and, you know, they might or might not, right? So you don't know. But like you say, the mother, you know, what, what, what grade level was your? So that was sixth graders who are like really, really different than kindergartners. It's really so much older. It's like so much is going on. <laughs> I, one question about, about that example and bringing it back to the legislation that I've just been sort of turning over in my mind while you were describing the situation. Uh, so to try to speak some of this back to make sure I'm not confusing details, uh, there were these remarks that were made to a student who was black that, that made that student feel out of place that was reported to his mom. Well, he reported it to his mom, presumably mom comes in and is like, this was messed up. And then there's, and then there's this sort of like reaction to it. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that in parallel with the, explicit intent of some of this legislation that is about like not making kids feel any kind of anguish. And I'm thinking about how like it looks like these two things are are sort of equivalent, but I'm just struck by the fact that like the one situation has to wait until something has happened and then it invites a response of one kind or another. And the other one is trying to act preventively to stop anything from coming up in a way that puts the entire issue out of play. I don't have any, I don't have a good question based on that. I just like, that is something that I noticed and I wondered what to make of that. Is, is that at all clear? I have a tendency not to be clear. Well, so Derek, are you saying the legislation wants to, you know, preemptively prevent a situation like the one Sarah describes from from happening? I think that's the most charitable way to look at the legislative kind of thing. But it, it, the practical effect is to erase race from discussion at all. But I feel like it is drawing a kind of a principled sort of moralism from cases like or from a situation that is sort of embodied in the one that Sarah brings up as like, this is what we are trying to prevent, but not sincerely. <laughs> That's what I would want to say. 
Well, I mean, it's important that it isn't really sincere. They're not concerned with the kind of case that Sarah brought up with the black kid feeling bad. They're only concerned about the case where a progressive point of view about the world makes a white kid feel bad. That's their, that's the paradigm case. The more general issue of kids making you say things that hurt each other, you know, it's like kids do that in class and you can't not, you know, you can't forbid that from happening. But, you know, in, in addition, some things that you learn about are going to make kids uncomfortable. And that's a different kind of case, Derek, right? So, in a way, mm-hmm. that's like a third case where something you're learning about makes you feel uncomfortable as a member of a certain group. And they want to forbid that. That's just insane. You can't teach that. That's different from if a kid makes a remark in class that makes another kid feel bad. Thank you. That's a really important distinction. I like. I I was thinking about the the structure of the Florida wording, where it is asking specifically about the if like teachers are responsible for not having particular emotional effects on their students, which is so outside of a teacher's ability to control in any sort of like, there's no, there's no way as a teacher who's concerned about their job to even walk in the direction of the line without jeopardizing what they are doing. And so the, the natural response would be to just be like, well, that entire region of human experience is just off limits to classroom discussion. I think that I've been like sort of wrestling with this question of like the extent to which again sort of like pretending or acting as though you can make the classroom a space free of disruptive emotions of experiences emotional pain is like again is itself a value proposition like I feel like uh Bell Hooks, who's like a feminist and cultural critic and has written about teaching. Like, I feel like she would say that is like a racialized proposition. That if you are proposing to make the classroom a space without anger, without pain, and she's like writing about college classrooms, but I think there is really like reference like to, to lower grades as well. Like if you are proposing to make the classroom a space without those experiences, you are pretending that none of your students are coming in with those experiences that need to be acknowledged in the classroom as part of who they are, as part of acknowledging who they are in the classroom and need to have ways of dealing with it. So I, yeah, I'm like struggling with that. And I, I think that's something like as a teacher that I am like thinking a lot about the sort of like how to leave space. And actually, Kara, I read your um, article, the Wander Time article, which I think relates to to this, like, how do we give kids the space to sort of like wrestle with really the really difficult shit that they have to deal with. Um, but like as a teacher, that's really hard. I don't feel like I totally knew how to do it. It's something I look forward to like thinking about doing more. So it's somehow this intersection of these issues about the like emotional dimension of creating space for for those scarier and more disruptive feelings and and then the relationship between that and these like broader conversations about about structural inequality we titled this podcast thinking in the midst and in choosing that title we purposely don't title it expertise in the midst <laughs> because we see that while people are bringing expertise into these situations, they require a lot of thinking and grappling. And I feel like uh, this episode has really showcased the amount of sort of thinking and rankling, rank, rankling with issues that needs to happen. Um, it's a little hard to segue to that, to closing with something kind of punchy or a takeaway, but I'm going to ask you guys to try. We move to thinking about spaces in which people can resist or work around or push back on these legislation. And Larry, you gave us some concrete questions that we could be asking or that teachers could be asking to think about what they can do within these laws. If you were going to give teachers or administrators, one or two pieces of advice, things that they could bring into the classroom on Monday to create a little bit more space for themselves and for their students in this context, what would your advice be? 
What could they do? I'm sorry. I'm, as it were, blanking. I mean, I just think that there has to be a multi-pronged pushback that isn't only the teacher in the classroom. But, for example, some of these laws have been challenged in court. And so several states, you know, including Florida, Florida's Stop Woke Act hasn't totally gone into effect because it's been held up. So it's very important that there are legal, you know, there's clearly there invading free speech and how you think about teachers' free speech is there's some people kind of working in that area. That's very important. I think the teachers' unions are just incredibly important. I, I wrote a note to Randy Weingarten prompted by someone on the PES panel with me from the Chicago Teachers Union who encouraged me to write to Randy. Randy didn't write back to me, surprisingly enough. But anyway, this woman, Tara Stamp, said, why aren't there national demonstrations happening in Washington? You know, there was one. There was a pro-public school demonstration. Sarah, did you and I go to this together or something? Or... Anyway, there was one, you know, not too long ago, like eight years ago or something. I just, in a way, can't believe there aren't more public demonstrations than I sort of expect there to be. And I think teachers need to feel that, you know, parents are on their side because the right wing pits parents against teachers. But a lot of parents want their teachers to do the things that Sarah is talking about doing. So, you know, parents and teachers need to be kind of organizing together in their communities as well as whatever they can bring to the classroom. Yeah, I also feel like advice is so not my jam. The like, just like, it's all complicated. Think about it. But um, I think the, I feel like, yeah, the role of administration in supporting teachers in like having to having the space to feel like they are professionals who get to like have ideas about this and have ideas about what to do but i also it's funny i don't know if this is right like as i was thinking thinking about and this again requires like support from administrations from the administration of schools and school personnel to feel permission to say that like schools have values that they stand for and like schools get to be an institution, like public schools are an incredibly important democratic institution. And we have values that, that we stand for. And those, and even to put those values in terms that are about sort of like an acknowledgement and embrace of, of difference and assertion of a need for kindness and care across lines of difference. Like as much as we've talked about what that might be leaving out that needs to be engaged with, I, I do also think that the past four years have shown that that is, that is, a radical proposition that needs to be asserted and schools get to assert that and do, I think, every day in so many different ways. Can I say one more thing? I realize that we're trying to uh, wrap up as this is happening, but I'm suddenly I'm revisiting um, some of the things that I said in this episode that I'm not entirely happy with or like habits of thought that I have. Like, of course, it's totally reasonable for teachers to uh, – for teachers to see this prohibition in effect and be like, to the extent that I want to keep my job, I should just stay far away from this issue. And I just like one of the things I'm thinking of Jarvis Givens as fugitive pedagogy at the moment that that the idea that like I don't have to be in this fight because my job is worth it to me is not an option that all teachers have. And it's not an option that all uh, uh, students who attend public schools expect their teachers to have. And so it's. It's a reflection of my own whiteness and the whiteness of the teaching profession in general that legislatures can expect it to have this kind of uh, effect that it has. But there's a long tradition of traditionally marginalized professionals working in schools, just going exactly around the law or the prescribed curriculum in order to give their students what they need. So maybe it's not too much to ask. That's a really important point. And, and, and black, there's a black principal in Texas in a town in Texas who lost his job because after the George Floyd demonstrations, he said something like, uh, racism is alive and well in the U.S. And, and he essentially lost his job for essentially for saying that. And I'm sure he's not the only one. I don't know any place that is bringing together like all the people who've lost their job under these 
under this new regime. But I'm sure it's many teachers of color. I mean, that's a great point, Derek. It's that's really a great point that they can assume that they've got basically the white teaching profession whom they're corralling. Um, Thank you both for being on this show. It's really been a pleasure and what a special opportunity to have a father um, and daughter team here. So thank you very much for that as well. Well, thank you. It's It's been a great conversation. And that is our show. Thanks to Sarah and Larry for being here. Take a minute to subscribe to the show, and if you have a couple minutes, leave us a rating and a review as well. To reach Kara and I, email works best. The show address is thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. In our next episode, we will be talking with guests who think a great deal about how and why it makes sense for teachers to push back against neoliberal reforms. Until that episode drops, and for Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb, and we will see you next time.